Hello and welcome to episode 116 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. Today we are going to be starting off by talking about sports in books. Do we like it or not? Um, and in, we'll, we'll see how far we get with that discussion, seeing as neither Simon nor I are particularly sporty people, which I'm sure will come as a huge shock to our listeners. <laughs> in the second part, we are going to be talking about two murder mysteries published in the British Library series, um, I, whose names have gone completely out of my head. Hang on, quick curtain. Is <laughs> <laughs> the first one. And the second one is It Walks by Night by John Dixon Carr. So, um, this is why I normally do this bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm just incompetent at everything. So, Simon, um, how are you? What are you reading? Um, I'm all right, thanks. Uh, I'll just say for listeners, Rachel tells me that her washing machine is on in the background. I can't hear it, but if you can, that's <laughs> that's what's going on. So, uh, um, <laughs> I have just today read The Census Maker by China Mayville. Um, have you read ever read any China Mayville? I haven't actually. No. Um, yeah, I've read The City in the City, which is this. It's not quite sci-fi, but it's it's this based on this city place where there's two cities in the same territory, and you're just not allowed to acknowledge the other half, or you get like told off by the secret police or something. But but sometimes, so you like you have to pretend not to see the other city and that sort of thing. It's really interesting. But it's also like police procedural sort of thing. Whereas this is set in a sort of no place, no time, but there's a man, a, a boy who lives at the top of this hill with his quite violent father. In the beginning, he runs down and says, my mother's killed my father, but then instantly doubts himself. And you're never quite sure exactly what's going on in the book. Uh, it's only 130 pages long, but the census maker of the title doesn't appear until page 110. So mm-hmm. it's a curious choice of title. So yeah, I found it very atmospheric, but ultimately maybe a bit, a bit unsatisfying. Well, that's a shame. Yeah, there we are. Okay. And uh, any other any other reason? Um what else I read recently that I liked? I did finish um the portrait by I'm gonna say Willem Jan Otten, or possibly Willem Jan Otten, who uh, it was written in Dutch and tra- I read a version translated by David Colmer, which is uh, again a novella from the perspective of a portrait. So it starts off as being just a canvas, like or a sheet of canvas, and then as the as the novella continues, it's uh, uh, it gets a portrait painted on it, and it's sort of about, I guess, identity and that sort of thing. There's, and there's a bit of a, a few twists and turns along the way, but uh, yeah, I thought it was really. If I if I'd known it was a novel novella from the point of view of a portrait, I might have thought uh, that seems a bit gimmicky, but it actually works really well, and I enjoyed it. Sounds like you've been doing some quite eclectic reading. And also novellas. Are you doing some sort of novella challenge or something? Yeah, I'm trying to read a book a day in May. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah, so far so good. But it's only day four. How to make life hard for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm a glutton for punishment. Mm. Um, how are you? What are you reading? I'm good. Um, I'm enjoying the the. the kind of quite sudden actually turn to summer which has been quite nice in London getting warmer um and when it's warmer I feel more like reading which is is always a good thing like I want to sit outside and and read a book which I've been doing a lot Mm. um so I've been um I've a few I think a couple of episodes ago I talked about a couple of Helen Ashton books that I'd I'd read Mm. and Helen Ashton is a Persephone author she has one book published by Persephone called Bricks and Mortar and it's very good and I've I don't know how I started reading another book of hers but I think I just found it for cheap on eBay and I've just become obsessed so I've managed to track down a few more and um, I just finished reading yesterday that I read over a couple of days I mean I'm gonna say this book it's it is very much out of print and hard to get hold of so I'm really sorry but it's called Hornet's Nest and the last two books I read by her, which are Dr. Serapold and Yeoman's Hospital, both set in hospitals. And this one, I didn't know what it was about because I couldn't find any information about it online. And I was just hoping that it, it wasn't going to be awful because I, I paid quite a lot of money for it. Um, and it was another book set in a hospital. And I thought, oh, okay, how, like, how many books set in a hospital? <laughs> but it is just absolutely wonderful. It's it's centred around a mistake that happens in an operation and all of the the kind of 
interpersonal politics and relationships between the doctors who who work in this. It's written in 1935, so it's sort of pre NHS situation. Um, and all the lives of the people in this small town. And she does small towns really well. And also Helen Ashton trained as a doctor um, herself. It's quite rare for a woman of the time. She was a nurse in World War One, and then decided to continue her studies, but she never actually practiced as a doctor, I think, because she got married. And, you know, how on earth could a woman uh, both be married and have a job? So um, she, a lot of her books are about hospitals and doctors and nurses and things, but I just thought it was absolutely, I just love the way that she writes. It's just so easy to read. And I, I'm actually quite surprised that she hasn't been picked up by one of the the re, the feminist presses to be republished. Um, she's probably a little bit too lowbrow for Virago, but um, she's, she's very Persephone and um, I think all of her books should be republished. So I've read that and then... Um, I've got another one of hers called People in Cages um, that, again, I got off eBay to read, which I'm really excited about, which is set in a zoo. Um, so that's going to yeah, be... that's fun. Yeah, I mean, that could be a future episode topic, books set in a zoo. I'm, I'm actually going to have one. So um, beat that. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. So, yeah, yeah Persephone did that one, of course, didn't they, but Bricks yeah. and Mortar, but... Uh, so often intriguing why they why they pick one and don't do any more. But um, maybe I need to do some reading for the British Library. She would be a good British Library author, and um, I'm not sure I would have chosen. Well, actually, I don't know. Hornet's Nest is pretty good. I mean, they're all really good. I'm I'm interested to see. She's also a, quite a, a diverse author in what she chooses to focus on. I know she's got a few historical novels that I I've not got hold of. She also went through a phase of writing kind of like fictionalized biographies of famous people so she's got mm. like a book about Jane Austen a book about um William and Dorothy Wordsworth and a book about Letty Landon who is a early 19th century um poet who I've which I've got to read as well so yeah quite an interesting one so um she's become my new favorite writer and I just can't stop reading her I love that that's great yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of being outside reminds me that I actually have been doing some gardening over the past few days and I'll tell you for why because my neighbour Barbara said to me that my garden wasn't looking loved (laughs) which is um, (laughs) true but then I think she felt bad because she she kept bringing me different plants from her garden to put in mine (laughs) after that but that's fun Uh, it's nice to read outside yeah Uh, finally it feels like it's been very late this year have you got yourself a little sort of reading nook in your garden, a little bench or something? Well, yeah, I bought a little, um, I guess, a recliner. It's called an anti-gravity chair, but I, I can't work out what what it's what part of it is not meant to adhere to gravity, uh, <laughs> which was lovely. Uh, sort of, I could tuck under my apple tree, but I had to cut down my apple tree because it got blossom wilt. Very sad. Oh, yeah, but that's why I bought some honeysuckle to take the place on the on the trellis where where it was. So. Oh, nice. Everyone give thoughts and prayers to my honeysuckle, see if it can survive my mm-hmm. benign negligence. <laughs> so, yeah, on to our first half, which is, do we like books about sport? Or let's broaden it out to books that involve sport in any way, because that's already <laughs> going to be slim pickings. This was a great suggestion by Lindsay, and I have every confidence that we will uh, pull together something to say. Um, although I've been given every assurance by Rachel that she's got no thoughts at all. <laughs> <laughs> Um, (laughs) uh, but I will start with the first thing that came to my mind which I think I've mentioned in a previous podcast when we talked about sport in passing is the cricket match in the go-between okay Um, I don't don't know if you recall but it's I think the only time I felt interested at all in sport it is a it happens on a very hot summer's day in the middle of it it's quite a lot a lot of the novel is devoted to this cricket match uh, and it it was, I guess, a glimpse that I have had of what it must be like to be a sports fan because normally I don't see anything even remotely interesting in a match or a game or, or yeah. But that one, I don't remember who won. I don't remember what role anyone was playing. Well, it's not role, is it? Position. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, the understudies, I'm sure, were great. <laughs> Uh, I was hoping I would think of more things to say about it than that, but that's that's the go-between covered in three <laughs> seconds. <laughs> um, I'll plow on with another one, and then I'll give you some more time to think. <laughs> uh, 
the only other novel I could think of, or the only novel I could think of at all, actually, that I've read where sport is right at the centre is Boxer Beetle by Ned Bowman. Did you ever read that? I, I haven't, no. I really like his writing. For those who don't know, he is he is the son of Nicola Bowman, and that's how people in our world first heard of Nicola Bowman of Persephone books. Um, because his books are really not, I wouldn't necessarily think they are the sort of things I'd want to read, but I think his writing's so good and he's so interesting that I do really, I've only read three out of the five maybe he's written, but I've really enjoyed them all. Um, and Boxer Beetle, it's like he's just picked completely different topics and shove them in, into one novel at random but it somehow works so the two topics that aren't sporting is someone who's very into nazi memorabilia and someone who's trying to make or like breed some like is it immortal or just like some really uh hardcore beetles um and the box of it is it there's lots about boxing in it so boxing is very central to the novel and again i don't know a lot about boxing or indeed anything about boxing uh, but I, I quite enjoyed being thrown into that world of the boxer because uh, it, it sort of offset with the sort of scientists, with the Beatles, the entomologist and the, and the Nazi stuff. It's all just so different and so weird that together it, it coalesces into something really intriguing. But again, if I just read that description on paper, I think I'd have run a mile from it. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly does sound interesting and not something I would have put you down as reading, but... Um... Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to have sport as the centre of a book. I think, for me, what's quite interesting about sport in books is how it's used as a kind of plot device. And I think in a lot of, particularly kind of 1920s, 1930s novels, you'll see tennis matches played between, you know, garden parties and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. where those are a vehicle to demonstrate emotional tension between characters. It's a way for men and women to legitimately be together in quite close proximity as part of a match. And um, I find that quite interesting to see. And it's, it, I've read it a lot in both American and British novels, really, that idea of the tennis party and the tennis club as being a place where um, men and women can can mix and romance can be be formed under the watchful eye of various chaperones. So actually, there a tennis club features quite heavily in in the aforementioned Hornet's Nest by Helen Ashton, um, mm-hmm. and that's where uh, kind of the tension between various women who are all after the same man come together. And you know who's going, who's he going to pick to play in the doubles with him, etc. Which is quite interesting. Um, but I have actually read a, a book about sport. It's just come to my mind. I have indeed. I knew, I knew it would happen. I knew it would happen. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? But there we are. It's it's called How the Steeple Cinderby Wanderers Won the World Cup by J.L. Carr. Ah. And J.L. Carr, most people's reference for J.L. Carr is his novella, A Month in the Country, which is one of my favourite books, actually. It's wonderful. Um and it's also, I would, I don't know if it's technically a novella because I can't remember exactly how many pages it's got, but it's very slim. I would say 150 pages or less. And it's really interestingly structured. So it's the story of how this tiny local football team go on to win a, a national prize. It's the FA Cup, sorry, not the World Cup. Um, which for our foreign listeners who are not based in the UK is our um, major English football championship, I think. I don't know. Um, what it, football I, think I was looking forward to you explaining what it was. But. <laughs> I don't know why I've, I've got myself in this hole now, so I'll, I'll dig my way out. Um, and it's it's told through the form of it's already happened and the the person who is writing it has been asked to write uh, it. The the, na- the narrator is um, someone who's been asked to write the history of the events that led to um, this this amazing victory by this club that just seems to come out of nowhere. And it's told through his eyes, but also through because he was also there at the time. And it's told through newspaper clippings and um, letters, and it's. I thought when I first picked it up, I thought this is going to, I'm not sure this is going to be my cup of tea, but it's, it's not, it's as much about relationships between people, competition between local people um, as it is about, about the, the actual game itself. And I, I just found it really interesting about how looking at how in this small rural remote community, it's 
football and the football team manages to bring everybody together even if they're not interested in football in and of itself it's it's about the pride that comes from the football team belonging to that town and that town being put on the map because of the football team so it's also a wonderful story about underdogs which you know is is a classic british theme so I, I really enjoyed it. And JL Carr has also written a book that's on my shelf, which I haven't read, which is all about cricket. And it's called, um, I think it's A Season in Sinji or something like that. And it's about a, a group of British expats in India and their, and their cricket team. So I'm quite interested to read that because I do come, from, I did grow up playing cricket, got quite a cricketing family. So. Yes, I've got A Season in Sinji, uh, um, which I've not read yet. But speaking of. Uh authors who are very varied he's extraordinarily varied in his books some of which i love and some of which i've liked less but uh any two of them would be very hard to even identify as the same author i think it's yeah. so eclectic and going back to what you're saying about the tennis parties yes i think um absolutely it's it's sort of if if the ball was the place in the uh 19th century novel then the the early 20th century novel is, is the equivalent of the ball isn't it where mm-hmm. where people go to not dance together, but yes, play tennis together and meet meet each other and flirt with each other, and and then you've got the older people not engaging in that activity, but sitting on the sidelines watching and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, um, I guess it's more of an upper slash upper middle class thing, but it does appear in lots of offensive novels. The French lady is very funny about it. Um, one of my favourite. Uh, little one-liners from, from Punch is a picture of a tennis party and the line they sometimes serve but mostly stand and wait. Really <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, I just want to, this isn't really relevant to that, but I just want to quote from uh, a novel I read by Andre, I don't know Mahuro, M A U R O I S, who was French, who uh, but he wrote this novel about the English army called The Silence of Colonel Bramble. Um, I think it's got, I think it's got another title um, as well because it's translated under different titles. But there's a quote saying, "We are a curious nation," said Major Parker. To interest a Frenchman in a boxing match, you must tell him that his national honour is at stake. To interest an Englishman in a war, you need only suggest it as a kind of boxing match. Tell us that the Hun is a barbarian, we agree politely. But tell us that he is a bad sportsman and he rouses the British Empire, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I thought is uh, quite indicative of the way that British people. Th- on, maybe on mass think about sport, possibly not us, but uh, but the whole idea of being sportsmanlike, I think, is an mm-hmm. interesting thing for it. Which you know, I've read lots of sketches by A. M. L. about golf, or if he would have, there's lots of short stories about golf where the idea of playing fairly is a uh, is the be all and end all. And of course, there's that famous slash dreadful uh, Roger Kipling. Is it Roger Kipling poem? Where play, play up, play up, play the game. Where they compare yeah, yeah. a cricket match to being yeah. the front line of the war, in the sort of like just be a good, good sportsman. So yeah. do your best for the team and for Blighty. That sort of. Uh... Yes. Yeah. I mean, a lot of propaganda is and literature is is centered around the idea of of the game, isn't it? And that very public schoolboy notion of of playing by the rules, playing fair, etc. And um, I mean, one of my favourite 19th century novels is actually Tom Brown's School Days. And that's got a lot of wonderful sports scenes in it where, you know, the boys are all coming together and, and playing against each other and the sports matches are at the centre of their of their lives together. And there's this lovely scene um, where they're playing a rugby match and little Tom is, is sort of gets trampled underneath everybody and his friends come running out with his little sponge to, to clean him up. And they, you know, they're like, come on, we'll carry you off. And he's like, no, I, I have to go back out there and finish. You know, that's what, that's what it is. <laughs> and, and those very um, sport being used in that context as a, almost a sort of preparation for, for the, the game of life and the struggles mm. and the battles that you'll face. And, you know, are you up to the challenge and, um, that really quite rough behavior that you see in in children's novels of the time of, of public schoolboy things it's um yeah it's quite interesting really to think about how those metaphors and, and that kind of diet of literature that people were certainly reading at, at that time or people of a certain class were reading at that time um carries on to that mentality that you see in in the early 20th century about 
war and and sports and the values that that come with that and i don't know whether that was echoed in other cultures i don't know whether that was how war was sold to german people for example i'd be interested to know whether those are the same ideas or whether it is a uniquely british thing yeah it's really interesting and i think uh as you hint at children's novels or children's stories are another place where sport is often even if it's not a metaphor, still front and centre. I mean, I've read endless lacrosse matches in oh, yes. uh, St. Clair's and Mallory Towers and other Ina Blyton series. I mean, I've never seen a lacrosse match in real life. I assume you played them at your school um, all the time, Rachel. No, never. I've never played lacrosse. I'm not that posh. Never. No. Um, <laughs> I, was, I, I mean, we had a lacrosse team at university and I remember thinking, oh, that's what lacrosse is because I'd read, I'd grown up reading Mallory Towers and thinking, what on earth are they doing? You know, this weird looking net thing that they're just running around, <laughs> waving around over their heads. Like fishing nets, yes. Yeah, it's like, what an odd <laughs> concept. And then I saw them playing at the university and I was just like, wow, you guys are from a different world. Not wasting my time doing that. <laughs> uh, I think the reason that um, I have read relatively few books where sport is central or get invested in it, is, besides not liking sport myself, is that for me, because that, that uh the stakes are just so low like if it's a metaphor for something then maybe it works or if it's there for like a social thing like the tennis party or a golf golfing tournament or something where you're just you're more interested in the dialogue and what it's revealing about people's personalities love that but if it's if the actual outcome of a sporting match is the stakes and not not the relationships of people i just i mean i just don't care who wins a sporting match in life or Mm -hmm. in fiction and it's like ultimately who cares who gets a a ball into a different part of a field the most it's like it really doesn't matter so uh any novel or indeed non-fiction that that uh wants you to care about that i mean i, I um i really like chuck klosterman's sort of pop culture books i read the 90s and a few, a few of his other essay collections and it's sort of his sort of um slanted view of or just a, like a really interesting view of popular culture in america but then he, quite often he does chapters or sections on baseball or american football and i just have to skip those because it's just absolutely i just have no interest in it at all and i think that's the thing like you have to have some investment in the stakes if it's been sold to you as like the outcome really matters for for better or worse yeah that's interesting isn't it because i mean that i for me i think sport works when in a book when it is a metaphor for something, but I, I'm just like you and and I do and I, I do sometimes get quite into a tennis match if it's Wimbledon or something. I can get behind it. But I'm I get behind it because I'm behind the people. You know, I'm I'm sold into the story of, you know, this person really needs this win, you know, they've had a really tough tournament or, you know, something terrible's just happened in their personal life. And you're like, oh my goodness, just let them have something, you know. And you get really <laughs> caught up caught up in the emotion of it all. Um, in terms of it as being, you know, just what it is as a as a concept, which is just either one person wins some money and the other person doesn't. I mean, I don't really care. I care about the people and, and who I feel deserves to win. And I think you can't help but have that element come into it. But it's it's interesting for me actually thinking about literature and um, who writes about what. I mean, there's lots of talk and certainly people who've been listening for a while know that I, I um, am do you look research into gendered literature in being taught in schools and Mm. I find it really interesting that a lot of books that are written for specifically a young male audience boys aged you know 11 12 13 that sort of age group very much those books are centered around football sport etc um you know, some kind of competitive sport. And you'll never really see that in books written for girls. It's this assumption that boys don't, number one, boys don't like reading. Number two, um, boys, all boys like football. Uh, Number three, if we write a book about football, then boys will read it. And there's so many assumptions and ridiculous belief systems are placed there that, that have no basis in reality. I know lots of boys who like to read. I know lots of boys who don't like football. I know lots of boys who would not read a book about football. So, um, but it's interesting how those books are kind of really marketed at getting, oh, you know, we'll get boys to read by writing about sport. And you will never have those discussions, hear those discussions being had about books for girls. And it's interesting mm. to think about, you know, how much of of what is included in books 
in terms of gendered activity because I do think sport is another gendered activity traditionally sport has been something for boys and not necessarily for for girls or men or women etc it's lovely that that's starting to change certainly in Britain you know I've uh, the England women's football team has, has had a lot of success and they're starting to get more interest in them and girls are becoming more interested in sport but I haven't seen any books for girls written with a female football player at the centre of it, for example, which would be nice. So it's, um, yeah, it's interesting that if books do have sport at the centre of them, I feel like they would be catered more towards a male audience than a female audience. That was my ramble. I don't yeah, know absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I think you're right. It's interesting that those, that, you know, in a writing say you could put, a big sport match at the center of a girl's novel if mm. you know a saying if we're saying that saint Clair's was aimed at girls which it probably was even though i loved it um but yeah maybe as you're saying that'd be much less common now um i was i was talking on, uh, to friend of the podcast lorna earlier about suggestions because i was getting desperate <laughs> um <laughs> and she did mention Do- double fault by lionel shriver about tennis i don't know if you've read that i, I haven't, haven't. <laughs> and I also think, Lauren, like, do I confess that in the line of trashy romance audiobooks that I listen to, there's quite often, you know, someone's a hockey player or an American football player or a baseball player, but that's all, the only confession I'm going to make in passing. I'm going to give no <laughs> specifics. <laughs> uh, whilst I would never want to read a trashy romance novel, uh, I do quite like listening to them on audiobook. Do you know what, Simon? There's no shame in this space, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's out there now. Um, <laughs> I'm not looking for recommendations. They're all the same. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Lindsay, um, for suggesting that. I hope we've done some justice to it. And uh, Rachel, do you like books about sport? I don't dislike books about sport. So I would read a book about sport. Yeah, sure. Okay, great. Um, whereas I think if I had a book about sport, I probably would run a mile from it. So I'm in no. Okay. And we've not even thought about nonfiction, but I'm going to assume that neither of us read a lot of sporting memoirs. No, I mean, that is where I would draw the line, I have to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not interested. Um Closer to home. And I think this is something we've mentioned in passing somewhere else, but we can always, why not do it again? Gria got in touch to ask if um, we could suggest books set in Oxford. Oh. Um, I'll give you a moment to think about it, as I say a couple. Um, because despite the fact that I'm sure there are many books set in Oxford, I don't think I've read very many of them. So I have not read any of the Morse books uh, by Colin Dexter, uh, obviously very famously set in Oxford. So I could come up with Zulika Dobson uh, about an impossibly attractive young woman in the Edwardian period who every undergraduate in Oxford falls in love with and um, all drown themselves. And during the boat race, I think there's some sport. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> other than that, I've read a couple of murder mysteries set in Oxford. There is Death on the Charwell by Muriel, no, Mavis Doriel Hay, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, the... Um, what's the one by Edmund Crispin, The Moving Toy Shop, uh, and Gordy Knight by Dorothy Alsayers. So there's a few murder mysteries set there, and of those, I would uh, I think probably most recommend the Edmund Crispin, um, even though this, the solution to The Moving Toy Shop is uh, not as wonderful as I'd hoped, but uh, is a fun, it's a fun, entertaining book. Um, but yeah, I mean, there it's a it's a place where. I sort of would assume dozens and dozens of books were set and I'd be quite keen to read them having lived in Oxford for a long time before I moved out to the sticks, but um, I haven't come across that many. How about you, Rachel? Well, you've mentioned two that I was going to say, which are Death on the Chairwell and Gordy Knight. Um, I'm just trying to think if I've read any others. I probably have because I've read books at the university, but I can't think of... Um, Gosh, it's gone right out of my head. I had something. <laughs> my time. You can tell the non-Oxford residents who says Chowell rather than Chowell. Oh, right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm an Oxford person. I mean, um, part of um, Vera Britton's bio, uh, autobiography is set in Oxford, and that's a really good view of um, what it was like to be a particular female student. 
in in Oxford during the the Ed, well late Edwardian maybe early twenties yeah it would have been late Edwardian period um, and that is Testament of Youth and um, there are other books that I have read that feature women being at Oxford University and I can't think of any of them which is annoying but if I remember them <laughs> in the notes yes do um, yes because Somerville was famously a one the first women's college and there were lots of um, I think that's the way very Britain was, and there knew various other people who were there. Uh, again, all of them gone from my mind, but there was a bit of a clique there at one point, I believe, of, of female intellectuals at that period. Well, Gria, we haven't come up with huge numbers, but a few there. And anyone who's got suggestions, please do say. Um, uh, ask, ask about London, and I can give you a very long list, but Oxford, no. Um, yeah, that's fair enough. Well, there we go. Um, on to the two murder mysteries published or republished by the British Library Crime Classics series. Quick Curtain by Alan Melville and It Walks by Night by John Dixon Carr. Um, which would you like to introduce us to, Rachel? Can I do It Walks by Night, please? You can. Um, I'll, I'll just do Quick Curtain first then. Um, which is a theatrical murder mystery set in the London theatre where uh, some an experienced producer is putting on a new musical called Blue Music and there's a scene where one of the actors uh, has to point a gun at the uh, leading man who is playing juvenile leads despite being I think about 50 <laughs> uh, and on that evening uh, Brendan Baker that star is shot and killed um, and then it it is up to Inspector Wilson of Scotland Yard and Derek Wilson, a journalist, to uncover what's going on. Uh, they happen to be father and son. And I think one of the things that makes this book so fun is that father and son relationship. Mm. It was published, I believe, in the 30s. It's not got uh, a sort of series detective or anything like that. I don't think that the Wilsons appear elsewhere. I, I could be wrong. But it's, it's a standalone um, theatre murder mystery. Oh, yes. Um, so It Walks by Night is, is set in Paris. So um, rarely for Simon and I, we're going abroad in our, in our reading. Yes. <laughs> and it's the story of a, what seems to be an impossible murder, a locked room mystery, if you like. So it's uh, Inspector Benkelin is the uh, inspector at the heart of things. But the story is narrated by his American godson, who also lives in Paris and gets drawn into the, the events, but isn't a, an inspector or associated with the police in any way. Um, a bit shady there. And sort of, it wasn't quite clear how he got involved or why he was particularly. Yes. <laughs> Never mind, without him, there wouldn't be a story. And um, there is uh, the mystery of, uh, there's a famous, uh, the Duke de Saligny, who is also a famous sportsman. He's a boxer. There we go. And a fencer. Sport. Oh, there we go. Yes, so he is. Uh, it always connects. We always find a connection. And um, he has just got married to um, a woman called Louise. And Inspector Benkelin is is sort of summoned by by her and by her husband because she is being threatened by her ex-husband who is has some sort of mental health problems tried to kill her before they've been divorced he's been in an asylum in Vienna and he's escaped and he has had his face um transformed <laughs> by, by surgery so that nobody actually knows what what he looks like and he has been sending these threatening letters and he's following them and he's threatening to kill her and so she summons the inspector that night they go to a, a club and the inspector's like, don't worry about it, I'm here, I'm watching you. And then her husband is beheaded in the card room of the club that very night. And there's no one going in, no one goes in the room and no one leaves the room. So who on earth has beheaded him? They think it's the the bloke whose face has been changed, who they, who they don't know what he looks like. But nobody saw anyone go in, nobody saw anyone go out. What on earth has happened? Inspector Benkman is going to solve the mystery. So there we are. And yes, and it's the first John Dixon car I've read, but apparently the inspector, it's the first book featuring this inspector, but he is in several or maybe even many others by um, yes. by John Dixon Carr. Yeah. Uh, have you read any other John Dixon cars? I haven't. Um, 
And I was really surprised actually to read his biography and, and, and read that he, he was American because I could not tell that he was American from his, his writing style at all. He read very much as a golden age British writer. Apparently he's very influenced by, by British uh, golden age detective writers. And um, yeah, I'd be interested. I didn't really get much of a sense of, I mean, Inspector Benkelein is described as being this sort of, you know, kind of aloof, slightly, slightly frightening character actually who um, has this kind of black pointed beard and is quite stereotypically French in many ways. But I didn't really get a sense of a, a strong personality from him that I felt would sustain a kind of series of 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 books where you'd feel like, oh yeah, I really get to know this. You get to know a little mm-hmm. bit about the personal life of the detective and you feel a bit involved in, in their world outside of their detective work. I felt like it he hadn't really he didn't really develop him as a character in his book. I thought the narrator was more of a character than him. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I would be hard pressed to tell you what he's like other than slightly smug. Yeah. Uh, and you know, he likes sort of tricking people into showing that they don't know what's going on. In yeah. a sort of Sherlocky Holmes way. I mean, yeah, it is it's very much a not Sherlock Holmes, sorry, Holmes Watson uh, way. And it is very much a Holmes Watson sort of relationship between these two, like so many books of that period were, where there's this all knowing detective who at one point was inspector, at one point says that it never takes him more than twenty four hours to to uncover everything about a murder mystery and a slightly hapless um Watson character asking the right questions. Yeah. And I think one of the things I really liked about Quick Curtain, as I mentioned, is that it's not like that at all. I, I just, this is a reread for me. I read it a couple of years ago, uh, and I just love the relationship between the father and son so much. They're so funny, and I I seldom read that sort of. They're not really saying anything that is particularly clever or funny, but it's that sort of badinage between them that is so light and would it's so easy to to write badly. But I think I thought it was done with this this wonderful lightness where you can sense the respect and love they have for each other all the time. But it's in some ways quite brotherly rather than paternal and uh, whatever and son like whatever that word is. Um, but they are, uh, yeah, they they're always teasing each other. They're always telling each other to shut up or, or, you know, stop being so annoying and without any ill will or any offense. And I, I just love that repartee between them. Yeah. I thought it was a lovely relationship and it's, it's a very lighthearted book in general. And there's a lot of humor in it. I loved the, the quite catty acerbic descriptions of the, th- of theater people. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> person myself, I recognize many of the, of the caricatures that you see in the book. And I just, I mean, I was just in fits right from the beginning when it said, you know, he's the the juvenile lead and it's like, oh, he waits to see 50 again sort of thing. And, and that kind yeah. of <laughs> sense of how um, vain these these characters, these people are and the infighting that they, they have of who's going to get what part. And um, yeah, it's just, I, I really enjoyed that lighthearted tone and, even though the murder that it was it kind of reminded me a little bit of a, an Agatha Christie novel in that you don't really care about the person who's died so, so you're not sort of emotionally yeah. involved and you're just free to enjoy trying to work out who the murderer is and enjoying that kind of unpicking process I mean I never can work out who the murderer is and it did take me by surprise at the end I was like well I never would have guessed that but it's it's so you're not um caught up in the get more caught up in the kind of mechanics of the story and, and the interesting elements of the plot rather than emotionally involved with the characters, which I felt John Dixon Carr was trying to to get us to be more interested in these characters as people and to feel that, feel the kind of the, the stress and the and the fear of, oh goodness, you know, what's going to happen if, if he manages to, you know, strike again sort of thing. Yes, and I will say, I'm going to unveil myself here, um, that I don't think it worked. I mean, I thought it was quite a bad book um, in general. And I I often got slightly confused about who the people were, even though he's trying to delineate them so much. I think the, the conceit that somebody is just around with a new face that is apparently un, like, unnoticeable having had this operation is just so stupid. And I really, it's, like, it's such a silly idea for a... Uh, this, the premise of a book that you know he could be anywhere because he knows what his face is it's like he lost me with that already because what i like about the golden age murder mystery is best is that you know it feels like it could happen anywhere or maybe somewhere usually upper class but it but there's that sense of 
these are normal people. Whereas by the time you've got that in, it's already, lo- I've lost any sort of, I'm just, I couldn't suspend my disbelief at that, that point enough to engage with anything else in the book. Um, yeah, and I found, in fact, even the introduction that was written for this edition says that it was uh, it's overwritten and lacking in realism whilst trying to sell it to us. And I did mm-hmm. find so many, at first I thought it was a joke that it was so overwritten. I thought it was like mimicking some you know, sort of medieval French document or something, or maybe not medieval, but you know, 18th century or something. Uh, it is so florid and I just, I really found it, I found it really hard to get through. Yeah, I mean, it, I agree. I thought it was completely overwritten. I mean, some of the passages were, were quite nice. I just thought, oh, yeah, lovely descriptions of Paris at, at nighttime and the description of the lights and um, all that sort of thing. But I, I was like, this is just, you're trying to write in a, if you want to write this kind of thing, write, write literary fiction, darling. Don't don't try and write her. <laughs> and I, I did find it very confusing. And I mean, it starts with a map and it's like, well, you know, study the map carefully. It's like, okay, well, I'm looking at the map and I don't know what you mean. Um, <laughs> you know, referring back to, to, to the map and the timings of things. I mean, I did find certain things quite obvious, uh, which for me is like it, that's that's bad because I'm I'm not great at this, this kind of novel, and that when it was sort of like oh you know actually um I, I probably shouldn't say this actually because it's a bit of a plot yeah let's not get let's not say the actual ending but I did find no. it very disappointing but yeah I mean it's it's just kind of like really at the end and and then it's kind of like oh haha I tricked you about certain things it's like yes but you've just said that this person can't be tricked so it was sort of I thought that it was all a bit odd, really, in terms of trying to shoehorn in the solutions. And there were too, for me, there were too many characters who looked too similar and had too similar names. I'm like, look, when you're writing a book like this, where people are trying to work out what's happened, you've got to make it easy for people. Like, don't give them, all <laughs> the don't make them all the same. And it was very much that kind of. 1930s novel where the women are all sort of femme fatales and very vulnerable mm. which i just find yawn yawningly boring so yeah and it was it was one of those things where people really conveniently you know leave cigarette ends around or mm-hmm. there's there's something like we can't go out the window because it's thick with dust it's like why would the window so be thick with dust in a in a club that is presumably cleaned every day yeah. uh, all these things that are just clearly there just to make little clues that and I mean, I'm sure John Dixon Carr has, other, has done great books because he's so renowned for the locked room mystery. But this one, again, won't spoil what it, the solution is, but it is barely a solution. It's, yeah. it's like, it's, I thought, oh, there's something really clever here and there just isn't at all. Uh, I found that really annoying as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I did quite like his little, little mention that when it was originally published, it was part of a series uh, where the end section was sealed, like the final mm-hmm. third is sealed and if you took it back to the bookseller with that seal intact then you get your money back it's like you've got everything you know everything you need now to tell you the who did it like, well do you you could pick it I, like, well, I, I didn't at that that point had no idea no idea what was going on at all um i mean i had a few clues there were things that i'd picked when i got to the end and he was sort of unpicking things i was like yeah no i had picked up on those things i just hadn't been able to use them to work out who it was because the actual solution is really stupid Yes. <laughs> um, whereas I think Quick Curtain it does give us uh, again it's not a particularly likely solution, but but I think the clues are there. So you could, you could, if maybe not piece it together yourself, at least when they're revealed, you're like, okay, yeah, that does make sense. I see now why that was there and all that yeah. sort of thing. Um, although the rug is slightly pulled from under our feet, but we won't say more than that. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I like I loved all the stuff about there's that section where we see all the telegrams to and from. Uh, Derek Wilson and Inspector Wilson when Derek's yeah. gone off on, on the hunt somewhere we get all the telegrams at first and then we get uh, sort of the whole scenes that led up to them we, so we see the telegrams again each time but that time it's with the context of why how they were sent and the reception of the telegraph uh, operating woman who I loved her she was great yeah. um, <laughs> trying to solve a mystery of her own about what do these very enigmatic telegrams mean um and yeah, again, it was just, in terms of plot, it was a bit repetitive then, but it was just done, that was more for humour, I think, than anything else, and it really worked. It just, um, it's just so such a fun, I think it's the most fun Golden Age murder mystery I've read. Is, and a lot of them try and be lighthearted, but this one 
this the dialogue felt sort of sparkling enough now that I would if it was yeah, that sort of tone in a you know modern day sitcom it would feel right that sort of back and forth quippiness um which is yeah so so rare in any book particularly in detective fiction yeah I thought it was um it's a good fun rollicking book with characters that you like and um want to spend time with as much as it is a mystery I think it works really well on both of those levels and I, I like I said, I love the, the use of, of the theatre and the theatrical world and the, the types of characters you, you get in that world because it makes everything quite heightened and funny, um, but also recognisable at the same time. And I think he was involved in the theatre world as well. So you can tell that he was and that's a world that he knew and people that he knew. And I found all of the kind of period details around you know, theatre at that time quite fun to read about mm. as well. So I think I love the like, critic who'd oh sorry yeah, no go ahead I liked him as well yeah I love the critic who'd who'd written the review before he went and then yes. when 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 someone came on as replacement he's like oh he asked someone if he was good and he's like well, he's pretty good it's like well no I've got a good line about him being bad so he's going to be bad in my review <laughs> uh, and yeah he he was great uh, um, and I like how he didn't engage in the stakes at all like he he didn't care the guy had been murdered he just thought it was quite funny um which you know he's a very callous horrible person but in the in the context of the novel really 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 and funny and it's actually i've read two other nod- novels set in theater around the same time naya marsh wrote opening, opening night and um nancy spain's cinderella goes to the morgue and it is it's such a rich uh setting for just that cattiness and bitchiness uh, as and competitiveness and you do feel more or less anyone has a motive for killing anyone else in a theatre is <laughs> the, the sense you get. Um, so, yeah, I, I laugh at any novel set in the theatre and particularly I think it is really ripe for a murder mystery because because it is so cutthroat. Yeah, I mean, everybody is after their own career in the theatre, so it's that kind of backstabbing environment and it, and all the kind of the vanity, the personal vanities and um, the snubs and slights and the audience and the critics and the actors and the managers and the people mm-hmm. working on the scenes and so on and so forth. You've got so much there of the world to to enjoy and it really works as a little microcosm of, of wider society um, in a way that I felt that It Walks by Night didn't really work because it's set in a rarefied world of very upper-class people who are living a life that feels very removed from the reality of most other people. So I feel like you can't, when you read Quick Person, even though it's set in a theatre, you see the types of people that you'd recognise from your own life. You know, these are just everyday people living their lives, living in a part of the city that we would recognise, living in homes that we would recognise, having relationships that we would recognise. And then in It Walks By Night, you know, I, I don't recognise any of those people. It's not a world that I know. It's not a world I'd ever be part of. These aren't people that feel real to me. So there was, again, that sense of remove. I didn't feel like I could be feel connected to these people in any way that made me and it care. doesn't feel yeah like it, parisians would recognize them either it is just yeah. this sort of quite set, cut off not particularly realistic world because i mean it is, as you say it's in paris and there are some descriptions of paris but the actual building or the rooms where all these things happen don't feel particularly to me like they're anywhere they're just a set of yeah. strange people i also think it's a dreadful title <laughs> what does it mean <laughs> yeah exactly um, makes it sound like a sort of budget horror film or something well yeah and I was expecting it to be a bit like that I thought oh you know we're going to be seeing faces at the window and you know this whole kind of I mean there there is a lot of of potential in somebody who who's had their their face changed and the the sense of misidentity and you know you could play around with it if you were a more skillful novelist I think um, obviously you've got to to be able to believe that somebody's face could change that significantly <laughs> you recognize your own husband but it's you know that he could have there could have been some more abject horror and more interesting things done with the idea of mistaken identity because I thought it's it said at night time there could have been more done with the shadows and darkness and and all that sort of thing there was never any point in the novel where I actually felt tense at any point no, no, that's a really good point. There definitely wasn't. 
Uh, and I think all oh, that premise could also have been very camp and it could have been like a sort of kind hearts and coronets sort of thing, maybe, mm. or, or even just like Mission Impossible where they're always pulling masks off and revealing other people. If it had been that sort of, if they'd lent into the silliness of it, but I think it was that trying to have this high literary style, this uh, supposedly genuine emotional tension and that weird concept just all didn't work together. Yeah. Yeah, he, he his ideas were more ambitious than his abilities, I think, unfortunately. Yes, although I think that is often true of detective novelists' first first novels. I think even Agatha Christie's first um, detective novel, The Mysterious Ferret Stars, it just has far too many ideas in it. Uh, so I will certainly, I've got a couple more by him and I will try others because I find the idea of a long dream mystery fascinating uh, mm. if it's chiefly about plot and it's a satisfying ending. But um Maybe listeners would be able to recommend better places to go. I do get the feeling this one was reprinted just because he's a well-known and good writer, or like a you know popular writer. And I wanted to get as many out by him as possible, rather than picking it as one of his better ones. It's my impression. Yeah. Well, there we are. The cover's very nice as well. Oh, the covers are always stunning, aren't they? Yes, from the Crime yeah. Classic series. So you know, um, well, it's not. So, yes, at least it looks nice on the shelf. <laughs> it's not going to be a big surprise, but I'm going to pick Quick Curtain from these two. How about you, Rachel? Yeah, shockingly, um, also uh, Quick Curtain for me. And I would be very interested to read more of his, his stuff, actually. So if anyone's got any recommendations for other Alan Melville's, then please let us know. Yes, the only other one I've read was Death of Anton, which is set in a circus, maybe for our upcoming Circus versus Zoos episode, but um, it's, <laughs> which uh, I did enjoy. I did think it's as good, but I have heard good things about Weekend at Thrackley, which I've got, but I've not read yet. Okay, yeah. Great. Um, in the next episode, we will be doing one of the British Library Women Writers series, Sally on the Rocks by Winifred Boggs, and we'll be comparing that with a book that's just been reprinted by McNally Editions, uh, The Ex-Wife, or possibly just Ex-Wife, by Ursula Parrott. And um, we'll have a guest, but I won't say more than that just yet. Ooh, exciting. Ooh, there you go, tension. That's Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.